Hi, I'm Caroline O'Donoghue, the host of Sentimental Garbage, and welcome to the bonus episode of my interview with Ava Rice, the author of The Lost Art of Keeping Secrets. If you haven't listened to my chat with Lauren Bravo about the book yet, maybe go back and listen so you get the full 360 degree experience. Here's my full conversation with Ava in which we discuss Take That, Pony Books, and bad, bad book covers. Um, thank you so much for taking some time to talk to us about this absolute jewel of a book. Thank you. <laughs> um, I honestly, um, I said this on, in the main episode as well, but I have no qualms about saying it again and looking like a total kiss arse, which is, I think it's one of the best written novels of the 21st century. And oh my gosh, I'll take that any day of the week. Thank in, in, you so in much. In terms of the range of emotions I felt while reading it, from like sort of intense sort of nostalgia, but also this thing of... What I loved so much about it is that the 50s are this incredible in-between time um, yeah. that often get washed over as just being either a precursor to the, the 60s or just this kind of uh, hangover from the war. And what's so interesting is that you've got these characters who are in, the, in this transition period of their own. Yeah. They're, they're in this kind of, they're not quite adult, not a girl, not yet a woman sort of scenario. Yeah. And so you've got like these transitionary characters within this transitionary part of the history. Yes. And I'd love to hear more on how you came up with that sort of. Well, that was what you've just talked about there was exactly what I was trying to um, <clears throat> nail in terms of the geography of the book, in a way, because I always found um, periods before Great Periods of Change, just on the cusp of that bit, to be almost more exciting than the actual point of change itself. So in other words, what, what got me started with this in the first place was the musical element. When I first had the idea for this novel, I didn't want to write about an England that was already aware of Elvis, for example. Mm-hmm. I wanted to write about an England that was waiting waiting for the next great thing to happen but they didn't know what that was going to happen and particularly these kids who were 16 17 18 they weren't even called teenagers the the term hadn't even been coined at that point in history Mm. they were um, basically expected to go directly from school into an adulthood that they only knew of through their parents really so this whole movement this sense of um, something uprising post-war was incredibly exciting to me because it felt like they were the they were the first people to do it really in that sense they were the first real proper generation that could call themselves um teenagers they were the people who were taking the rules and smashing them up and um when i started researching the book what was so interesting was that there were a lot of characters who were obliterated by the arrival of elvis a lot of people who so as soon as Elvis is seen as your year dot, you wipe out a lot of stuff that was happening in the really interesting period just before he emerged. And I decided quite early on that I wanted to make Johnny Ray um, a character in the book. He's a real person. He, he, he existed. Um, but nobody really knew who he was. When I started asking my friends, have you ever heard of Johnny Ray? The only um, knowledge people had of him was through the Dexys Midnight Runners song, Come on Eileen. Poor old Johnny Ray. Poor old Johnny Ray sounded sad on the radio, broke a million hearts in mono. And it, that, that song, the first verse of that song is all about uh, Kevin Rowland, the lead singer of Dexys, his mum and her obsession with the singer Johnny Ray in the 50s. Mm-hmm. And I asked my dad about him and about uh, people of that generation about Johnny Ray. And it suddenly it came to light that there was this huge pop star at that time who was, was able to whip women into a, girls, young girls, into an absolute frenzy when they came to see him play. But when Elvis came along, he was, it, he was kind of the John the Baptist, I guess, to Elvis. <laughs> and when Elvis came along, it, it, everyone before him was sort of wiped out. But I like the idea of taking this, 
this um, the, the sense of the movement uprising rather than it peaking. And Johnny Ray seemed to be uh, the kind of pop star epitome of this. Yeah. And um, and having having writing about kids who were absolutely on the brink, but not yet at the point where they knew what was going to happen next because they, everything was post-war rationing hadn't even ended in 1955, mm-hmm. 54. Um, so it felt to me like a really exciting time because in, in a weird way, being in the kind of um, post-war no man's land felt like a really exciting starting point for a story. Yeah. Because everyone can write, you can always write about Elvis, uh, you, you can always write about, you know, a post-rock and roll London or a London that is experiencing rock and roll for the first time but what about that little bit that happened just Mm. before that that was really exciting to me and so did the the decision to write in this period come first and the decision to have these girls on the crux of this kind of womanhood yes the characters come second oh um I I wanted my my major influences in this book I I went through I I, I read a lot of Nancy Mitford which is fairly obvious from you know and Dodie Smith in in a delightful and no in no way annoying way you know oh well it doesn't feel like you're aping her so much as (laughs) as, is a tribute and there is a bit where somebody says well if you want to hear about books then wait till Nancy gets here and I love to think that is the Nancy oh absolutely that's one of my my most fun things about being a writer is dropping real names into the story which I kind of gave myself license to do with this book and with everything else I've written actually post this but um the decision to have these uh, the 17-year-olds was because I feel like, um, for, for me in my life, I felt like that 17-18 was such a key moment. Um, it's such, such an important time in, in any girl's life. And to have that happening at the same time as a huge change in cultural shift um, in, in this, this, this time period felt really exciting. And my other major influence was a writer called Ruby Ferguson, who wrote... Well, I've heard of her. Well, you should definitely check her out. She wrote a lot of children's stories. She wrote a lot of pony books about girls and ponies in the 50s. Oh, and I was the most sort of soothing genre of book. Oh, the absolute, <laughs> absolute best. And I went back to her books, um, weirdly, in my early 20s, because I wanted to kind of see whether they stood the test of time and they were still great. And I read practically all of them in one sitting, and I just thought, this woman, her style of writing was so amazing and so funny. And her dialogue was so great. And you could still love them as an adult. And I set off with the first page of Lost Art, I actually stole a sentence from the first page of Jill's Jim Carner, one of Ruby Ferguson's books. And um, what was very, the um, it's only It's only a short bit. It's when um, she goes, just look at that sentence, exclamation mark. I love that bit, yeah. And that was a direct nick from Ruby Ferguson. But I let the characters in those books in her Jill series um, really influence Charlotte and Penelope. And, she's pro- and I actually acknowledge her at the beginning of the book as well because I felt like so much of what I wrote was so based on that style that incredibly optimistic effervescent energetic um, sort of uh, pre-rock and roll but post-war thing that was going on and about being a teenager at that point she she was a massive influence on my on this book because in many ways it feels as though um, you do begin with a kind of a very jolly hockey sticks sort of vision of of Charlotte and Penelope and who they are and um, I because I, I hadn't uh, read this book before Lauren Bravo told me to read it on, on a, as a her request for her assignment <laughs> and um, so it was a joy and when I got when I first got into it I was like oh this is a lovely soothing read and uh, then I hit Julie in the loaf I was like oh no <laughs> this is like this is something different altogether this is like an eccentric strange but incredibly tender um, book and I, I think actually the moment where I knew it had 
I mean, Julian the Loaf was when it had my like brain. I love that you love that because I um, <laughs> when I was at boarding school, I, I had this weird. I don't know what. I mean, obviously, I was desperately seeking attention at the time, um, but I decided to keep <laughs> making myself sound insane. Keep keep a loaf of bread in a cage. You did not. I did. I swear. I mean, I'm literally making myself sound bonkers. <laughs> this is the most like bonkers posh girl story boarding school ever. I, I, I know, love it. and I'm, I'm aware of the fact that, um, that exactly it, it, it underlines all of that stuff and blazing technicolor. But, but I felt like um, for a few days it was just it was obviously some kind of attention seeking thing that I was like, oh, right. he was he was keeping a loaf of bread in, in a cage called Julian, and I thought and. And oh, literally called Julian. Yeah, Fabulous. and then and then and then I sort of lost interest in it, for, you know, after that, and decided that it was it was a sign of, of um, some form of insanity. <laughs> um, but 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 I remember thinking with Harry, the character of Harry was so fun because I could kind of create my dream boy as a teenager. Like, and he is very much a dream boy. Who would I have really fancied when I was seventeen, and why? And um, and by making him. Um, you know, eccentric and brilliant at magic and looking a tiny bit like I always imagine him looking a bit like a kind of damaged David Bowie with the kind of, because of his different kind of eyes. eyes. Yeah. And, um, and being, um, you know, being sort of slightly tormented by the wrong love. And um, I, I absolutely love him because he, he sort of represented no boy that I had ever come across um, or, or, or ever did when I was a teenager, but he was sort of like a manifestation of all the boys I kind of wanted to meet mm. and wanted to find. And the kind of boy that you might get in a pony book as well. You know? Absolutely, yes. Sort um, of strange and yeah. appears and disappears. And yes, and there's just the element of magic was a real deliberate thing to have this um, this sort of... She, when, when, when Penelope initially meets Charlotte, she feels as if she's stepping into a world that is slightly magic. She can't quite put her finger on how and why. And so Harry, being a magician, was sort of a, an actual real-life um, representation of this sense of her falling into this sort of magical world right um but equally i wanted to have charlotte falling into penelope's world as well so that she's yeah. drawn in by milton magna and charlotte is and penelope's drawn in by charlotte and harry and they're both getting something huge from each other which i think the female friendship thing was also something i really wanted to explore in this book because um it, having gone to boarding school and having had these incredibly intense female friendships during my teens, um, what I wanted to, to to get across in this book was that a lot of the time, even though you're talking about boys and you're talking about uh, men or, you know, and, and, and kind of how, how Penelope feels when she first meets Rocky, for example, the person she really wants to be with is Charlotte. The person yes. she really wants to talk to is Charlotte. The person who she wants to impress and the person who she wants to think the most of her is Charlotte. And it's not until right at the end, when they've both grown up a bit, that she can understand her feelings for Harry. But Charlotte is the kind of... She, she's the lightning bolt, more than anyone else. It's almost like she's having adventures so she can tell Charlotte yes, about them later. Yes, exactly. Yes. And there is, and there is that sort of um, undercurrent of something more, and it's not sexual, but it isn't not sexual you see what I mean it's like it's got it's got a weird um there's something sort of unspoken about those friendships when especially at this time in the 50s but um about about the the intensity of them and I wanted to get that across but also show how when men come into this situation how it alters it and how it um how it affects that I I had thought at various points of the novel that there are many characters and scenarios that you could read as queer and I think um, Inigo is a great example of that 
I think there is Inigo. an Inigo. Yes. Sorry. Um, no, no, no. I, I love the fact that actually, because Talitha, lots of people call, pronounce as Talitha, which is another pronunciation of the name. Yeah. But I always wanted it to be Talitha. Okay. Um, there was a very beautiful girl with me at school a couple of years above. I've never said this actually. Really? She, she wouldn't even, she probably remembered me because she was <laughs> a couple of years above me. And I always remember thinking she, she was a kind of the person I had in my head with that character. But yeah, and it's weird because, um, that you said that because my, the book I wrote after this, which was, which was about Inigo and it's about, it's, it's kind of, it's oh, right. sort of about him and what happens to him. Um, it, that there was, there was quite a lot of that sense of, uh, of repression in that sense. In, in, Inigo, um, he had to represent something completely different in this book to what the girls are representing because he was representing the looking towards America mm. and, and, and the single-minded obsession that he had with music. And, um, and even though he's quite a minor character in this book, he was so important to me because he, he was ultimately outward-looking. And, and, and I love the idea of bringing in a character, his uncle Luke, who could bring back Elvis records before anyone had heard of Elvis. And I sort of love this idea of somebody, you know in a huge house in the middle of Wiltshire, actually having one of the first copies of one of Elvis's songs and being able to listen to them on, you know, on vinyl and going, what is this? And him being the only person who really yeah. gets it. And I suppose maybe it's unfair of me. Maybe that's why I presumed that there is a kind of inherent queerness to the character because you often get that in novels where um, where the queer character is the first, is sort of the tastemaker and sort of the, yeah, yeah. the person who sees the potential, who sees the spark before anybody else can. Yeah. Something a little bit subversive about him that way. Completely, and I wanted him to be subversive. I ne- was never kind of clear about him in that sense particularly, but I wanted him to be, um, I wanted him to be quite radical mm. and quite, um, I wanted him to have opposite views to his sister and to view her, her, her kind of crush on Johnny Ray to be, you know, yeah. irrelevant compared to what was to come. And the fact that Elvis was just this earthquake that he could see happening, he, he could feel happening. And it's almost like the girls, the girls think that they know it all, the girls think yeah. that they're, you know, so forward thinking, but actually he is the one going, just wait. And you, you I, don't know I, what's going to happen I next. I completely adore that the girls, they never apologize for Johnny Ray. And they, people take the piss out of them throughout the book. No, but that's just me and take that. And, <laughs> and, and, and all the bands that I loved when I, I mean, take that are now very credible in terms of the fact that they've, you know, they kind of came full circle when they reformed and everyone realized they were great. But I spent a lot of time in, in, my, um, in, in my teenage years being absolutely obsessed by, you know, a reasonably early take that. Mm. And um, people around me, going what you know why aren't you listening to um whatever else was called at the time i'm trying to think sort of i don't know maybe maybe it was kind of the uh stone roses james that kind of era mm-hmm. so yeah so 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 in fact the johnny ray uh teen obsession um aspect of it was one of my most fun things to do and i i found a woman online who'd been to see johnny ray in concert and i had a you know an email exchange with her about how it felt there was also a brilliant book which is called um, a what bamboo, bamboo, what bamboo, something like that. Mm-hmm. And he wrote this brilliant book about pop. And what is in, what was interesting I th- when I was researching this whole period was the anarchy. Because when the fifties are presented, particularly on TV or in film, everyone's quite pristine and it's all quite yeah. sort of you Pudle know, and, yeah, exactly, yeah. and and quite sweet. And actually, if you if you delve into it, what was happening? Cinemas were being ripped apart when people were watching. Blackboard Jungle. People were at the Teds were terrifying. You know, they're walking around with knives. They were, they were, they were the gang culture was rife. It was, um, it was, it was a lot more violent than people imagined. And in, in the same way that when people were going to see Johnny Ray, people weren't just sort of sitting there, you know, meekly waiting for this guy to come on. 
they were absolutely losing their shit. They were going <laughs> b- ballistic because here, here was the guy who they're obsessed by. They, they were having, they were in full fledged teenage hysteria at this man, and he was known as um, he was known as the. Uh, Nabob of sob because he cried all the time on stage and his whole thing was he whipped people into an absolute frenzy through his own emotion and he was he was kind of Mr. Emotion and he wore hearing aids because he um he lost his hearing as a child and uh and he was gay and was you know obviously never spoke about it at the time but he and was a massive influence on Morrissey and on a lot of other you know subsequent pop stars who you wouldn't kind of imagine but because of this and he came over to England which is also quite rare at the time for an American pop star to come over but he really really was one of the first guys to get people into absolute hysteria and when I wrote about that I was thinking about how you know going to see Take That and I would it was it, it was it was such an important thing for me to have these guys who I could plug into who I knew I was never going to get and yet the you know the thought of the potential of getting them was so was so important it it was such a such an important thing for me at that time to have a uh a kind of destination to be working towards when it came to men or boys or something was just you know they were kind of the ultimate it didn't matter what they they were just didn't matter which one did you have did you have one i well i always i i i I loved robbie and then he left and then i loved gary and um and Gary is ridiculous. He's now my friend. I know, I know him. No. Yes, I do. It's ridiculous. And I still have to kind of pinch myself when I, when I sort of see Gary um, and he goes, comes up and says hello. I'm kind of, oh my God, can this be happening to me? Um, but, but, but I loved that because, because I, my, I was obsessed by pop music as a, as a teenager, absolutely obsessed. And I, it drove a lot of what I did outside of school, you know, going to see bands and kind of pouring over copies of smash hits and reading the lyrics to songs. And um, I was a proper pop music obsessive. So I wanted to bring that in, in a way where I could investigate how early pop was sort of, and no one thought pop was going to last. And did you have a moment where, because one of the uh, the sort of journey I'm going on with this sort of genre of book is that um, everybody... Almost every woman I know learns how to do her adult reading through um, women's fiction that they pick up that belongs to their mother, and they sort of read. They read their, their Marion Keys mm-hmm. or the Judy Coopers or mm. or what have you, and then that's how they learn how to read growing up books. Yeah. And then generally, when they're about fourteen or fifteen, um, a boy comes along and tells them they should be reading Kerouac. You know what you say to the boy at that point. Yeah. You say, "Go away and read. I capture the castle, and then come back to me and tell you know anything about girls." But I don't think I don't think girls have the confidence to do that. Well, I they didn't. don't. But my brother said something to me the other day. My brother's two years younger than me, and he said to me, and it was a hilarious conversation. He said to me. I just think that every teenage boy should be given a copy of I Capture the Castle because you learn more about girls in that book than you ever would through anything else. Yeah. And um, they're missing a trick, these boys. Because, oh, totally. because Because it's all in there. And frankly, yeah, the idea... I mean, yeah, of course, boys, boys, you know, sort of sending you, um, sending you uh, music that they think you're going to like. And, or, oh, right. I mean, in my case, I don't know, say Led Zeppelin, I'm could never quite be my absolute jam. Whereas, um, you know, obviously a great band, but I, I was always sort of slightly embarrassed about the fact that I would rather be listening to Madonna at that point. Um, and, um, <laughs> and, you know, and, but, I, but I feel like the, the whole thing of what you can get out of books as a, it's almost like, as a, as, yeah, as, as a young girl, and you're be, if you're being told to read stuff, you're so malleable, you're so influenced by, if, if it's someone who you happen to think is great, just telling you to read something, yeah. you're kind of going, oh my God, I should love this, I should love this. I, but, I have a really uh, problematic relationship with James Joyce because mm. um, when I was about 17, I was reading uh, 
Peter S. Beale's The Last Unicorn, which mm. is the most beautiful mm. fantasy novel ever, I think. It's absolutely brilliant. It's gorgeous. And um, there was the, the other boy in my class who sort of wanted to be a writer and we had kind of a friendly rivalry thing. Yeah. Just sort of like sat next to me on the bus and sort of gave me this look, you know, the kind of penetrating look and just got Ulysses out of his pocket. Oh, and no. And I was like, oh, fuck off. No, oh my gosh, that's absolutely unacceptable. But unacceptable. you see, I, I would have said at the point, I mean, I because uh, I quite often get asked what who my favourite writers are and I always say I mean ugh, it's such a difficult one but in terms of the sheer pleasure that they've given me I would say Jilly Cooper mm-hmm. uh, D.H. Lawrence and Sue Townsend and I, and I just would find it because in terms of the uh, you know the honest bookshelf like the yeah. one where you actually have the books that you really 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 want to read those three and of course you know Stella Gibbons Daphne du Maurier the absolute absolute godmothers of all this stuff I feel like people um, they like to attach a worthiness to du Maurier they, they like to make her seem like she's more difficult Absolutely. to do than she is yes. and, and, and same with Patricia Highsmith as well yeah, yeah, yeah. Like these are like page turning yeah, thrillers yeah, yeah. and romances but, and... but it's so much more difficult to do that than it is to do anything worthy I yeah. mean it's so, oh, totally. it's so much more difficult to do um, something brilliantly commercial than it is to do something you know that's brilliantly reviewed by kind of cult cultish papers and stuff yeah. the, the, the thing that's really hard to do is to be is to be popular and brilliant I mean and you don't have to be original you just have to be good mm. like you, do, you know nothing you do has to be um, the, the, a story that no one's ever told before you can tell the same story a million times but if it's good then that's all that matters and it's it's hard. So it's really what, what hard. Was your, I mean, this, this book became, it's fair to say, a phenomenon. I'm sure people talk to you about it all the time still. Well, you written, what, 12 years ago? <laughs> um, uh, yeah, it, I guess 11, 12 years ago, yeah. Yeah. And so I, I'd love to talk about the packaging and the mm-hmm. marketing because, mm-hmm. I mean, t- to me, this cover is a little bit deceptive. And, and the illustrations are a little bit deceptive. And, yes. And it, but I, what, what it makes me think is that I, I, when I got you know a quarter into it, I was like, oh my god, I think I might have found one of my favorite books. How lovely. Yeah. And then every time I came across an illustration, I was like, who are they marketing this to? And it just seemed like someone really believed in it, and they wanted as many people to see it as possible. That's exactly what happened. And I and I I kind of let myself be guided by the team who worked on the book, who were absolutely brilliant. Um, George Moore at Headline was amazing. Um, and yeah, um, she's a legend. She's she's a complete legend. And my editor Harriet Evans, they they were so convinced by it. I mean, in a way that you know, half the time I'd be kind of tearing my hair out, going, "Oh my god, I've just plagiarised Ruby yeah. Ferguson, and I don't like it." And you know, <laughs> um, the kind of depressing thoughts you have about writing when you're trying to write. And and they were so um, they were so convinced by the cover and by the illustrations and by how it should be done that I went, "Great, let's just go along with it." And and it worked. And I, but I have to say that it probably wouldn't have been what I would have chosen myself mm. for the cover, but what they did absolutely worked. Did, so you, I, did you have sort of an idea in your head of what the cover would look like, and then you were like, oh. I think everyone has... I'm not saying yeah. it's a bad cover, by well, the way, no, at well, all. This, this is actually the cover of the, um, the, the, the reprint, but um, the original one's got more of the cartoony cover of the... Um, I feel like I... <sighs> titles and covers are such a minefield, as far as I'm concerned, because briefly to touch upon this one thing that I find unbelievably irritating is the sort of catch-all thing that I think often publishers or it's not even their fault I think it I think I think it comes from supermarkets it comes from um you know the people they're trying to sell the books to who are thinking if we put 
um, a girl half looking at the camera and a handbag and a flower and, um, and a house in the background, then this book's going to sell because that's what women want to read. Whereas if you're a David Nichols or a Nick Hornby and you're really writing for women, I mean, a lot of these yeah. guys are writing for women, you're going to get away with a very, very cool sort of... Um, One Day was a very striking cover. One Day cover. was a brilliant cover, but I've, I just so can't believe... So what was commercial women's fiction? I cannot believe that he would have got that cover if he was a woman. I just don't believe that he would have done. Yeah. Because I think that if you're a woman, it's, it's that thing of, um, you know... I just I saw some covers for my my last book that my book that came out a few years ago, the 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 original covers that were done for that, and I nearly, I mean it was the most upsetting thing I've ever seen because they just kind of put a meadow scene, a picnic <laughs> basket, and I was like, when are they ever in a meadow? When are they having a picnic? And kind of two champagne glasses, right? And um and I I, I really really find the covers and titles thing very stressful, but um. I've, I've, I've realised over the years that the way to do it is to go in with your own ideas and say this and actually physically to take ideas in mm. and um, and if you've got people who who like George who understood what, what we were trying to do with this book I always felt like this book was almost on the verge of being a YA book as in it kind of would have been okay in that section of the shop mm. but they rightly realised that they could cast the net wider than that um, because teenagers ended up reading it anyway because teenagers exactly ended up reading it, but um, but I feel like uh, you, I think I think you always have covers in your head, and then um, it's hard not to look at the first cover that's presented to you and go, oh, oh, that's not that's not quite how. Yeah, I, I definitely had that moment. Yeah, yeah, because my cover has a has a large rose on it. Yeah, and um, which is is in, is in keeping with the tone of the book and everything. But I had this moment where you know you always want to know what your first ever book is going to look like, and you have all these expressions of the kind of author you're going to be, and then you see it, and no matter what it is, you have that moment of oh, I think I'm going to be sick. I absolutely, <laughs> and all the fonts weird, and the blurb is another massive problem. Oh, yeah, I mean writing blurbs and just if you ever leave anyone else to write a blurb, it's always a mistake. You just have to just do it yourself, and it's that real thing of just thinking right, I'm not. You have to be in absolute control of as much as you can of it as possible. Because, you know, it's so easy for things to slip through the net. And weirdly, when I was writing Lost Art, um, I actually, I, I was pregnant and I had my daughter early. She was five weeks early and I was supposed to be finishing an edit. And I was kind of editing as in, as in a um, proofreading and stuff. And I, and I was able to kind of get back to it after I'd had her, but I slightly took my eye off the ball. And there were a couple of um, things that slipped up that I, I was so cross myself about, like... At one point, I mentioned After Eights, and then on Amazon, about sort of five people pointed out that After Eights hadn't actually come out in 1994. Right, right. And there's a party that just goes, Shut up! <laughs> but also, God, you're right. <laughs> yeah, exactly, but that's so annoying. Totally. Um, and I'm quite slapdash as a person, as in I, I'm quite kind of like, Let's just get it done, and then, you know, we'll work on it after, you know, we'll, yeah. then, then we'll fine tune it, sort of thing. And, um, and this book, because of it being set in such a specific time frame, I had to be quite detailed with it and, and really go through it and think, Would they have worn that would they have been able to use that expression you know um would, would she have said that would that have been actually something you would say in that year that that strikes me as being an incredibly stressful part it of was it was really quite hard but but on the other hand you the thing that i love about it is that you don't have to bother with phones um the internet yeah. and stuff that just obliterates plot they really one, do they explode it ex- I mean, and you know before you know it i mean talitha could have looked up all kinds of things about Aunt Claire. It, there are so many things that would have been ruined by setting this book at any other time. I actually, I really want to talk about um, 
just to go back to the plot briefly about the Aunt Claire Talitha thing. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, that bit takes people by surprise a little bit because yes, it, it's basically the titular secret. Do you know yes, what I mean? yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, so wh- wh- how how I interpreted that, mm-hmm. I want I just want basically for you to tell me that I'm correct. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that yeah, I interpret yeah. it is that the sort of the point of the book to me is that sort of the the brief sort of transcendental experiences that you can have simply by meeting someone who sees you for who you are. Yes. Yes. And 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 so and Penelope goes through that with Charlotte and yeah. when she she basically she lives this like long murky life of 18 years of yeah. like, and have not never really being seen or understood yeah. and then she suddenly meets someone and it's like it's like she comes online for the first time and mm-hmm. she just wakes up and then she finds out through Aunt Claire and her late father that I don't know all the characters around her have had these brief touching spark points as yes. well and their lives have been made transcendent I don't know would you say that's an accurate reading Absol- of the book absolutely and, and about the fact that it can be a fleeting moment that can then have um, have, have a profound effect on the rest of your life yeah um, and um, I think it's exactly it and I think I wanted for example the initial meeting between Penelope and Charlotte to be by chance and I like the idea of these things, these events happening by... And the chance echoes by chance, and, and that chance then echoing through, yeah. Um, because that's life as well. Yeah. And um, yeah, so that's exactly right. It's, it's about the um, people, people being able to be themselves with the right people. Yeah. Um, I guess, yeah. And that being this thing that just lights them from within. Yes, exactly. We, d- we spoke about uh, Daphne de Moyer a little mm-hmm. bit um, before we started recording. And I mentioned that... Um, Talitha? Talitha, but you can Sorry. call her Talitha. So, t- Talitha is also yeah. fine. Um, how she's kind of like a my cousin Rachel if Rachel kept on living <laughs> and had to deal with the admin of a large house. Yes. Um, but another bit wh- whereby it reminded me of Moyet was um, Penelope is an unreliable narrator from the sense that she sees herself as being this plain nothing. Yes. But actually the way people perceive her is deeply different. Yes. Which, which reminds me a lot of reading Rebecca the first time you think yes. she's this plain kind of teenager yes and then you realise the way people are speaking to her that like not it, not everyone can just go to Monte Carlo yeah, and yeah. find a rich widower and, yeah, yeah, yeah. and, and he, at one point he says to her like oh your your last name is very exotic just like you and you wonder yeah. well who is this person really but that that's I read I read something um, about um, Daphne de Maria that because obviously Rebecca is one of the greatest studies of jealousy ever oh yeah ever, ever, ever written and um, apparently when when she was writing that book, I think she was casting herself in both roles. Yeah, I think she was both the narrator and Rebecca. Because that's that sort of like boyish yes. amness to the, yes. the kind of outdoorsy ruggedness of Rebecca and the earthiness to her. Yes. I think it's definitely was, how was Moyet saw herself. Her. Yes, and of course she was exotic, and of course she was charismatic, and of course she was all these things. But I think in the face of jealousy, she she saw herself shrinking, mm-hmm. and she became this it, inwardly what she was you know um, what she projects in the book is how, how she is but actually I don't think I think it's a really interesting point about that book is that she isn't that person yeah. and that, that's her view of herself and, and in a way that's exactly gosh that's so interesting that you pick that up about Penelope because um, you know she, she, the, whole, the whole point of her is that she's got to have that there is something amazing about her it's not just that she's, she's young and she has a nice house no, no. But, she, but she's always um, taken the view that Inigo looks like their mother and her mother was the, the, the great beauty and also that the mother has very, very um, gradually over the years chipped away at Penelope in terms of 
and not even really wanting to, not necessarily in a horrible, malicious way, but she doesn't like the fact that there could be any kind of rival to her beauty. Mm. And so she, um, she has uh, made her daughter feel not as beautiful as she is, or made her feel like there's no sort of competition, I suppose. Um, and, I, yeah. but, and, I, and that makes her sound really like, like a not so nice character and I always really love Talitha but I think she's unbelievably flawed and one of her flaws is that she had her daughter incredibly young and she wasn't quite able to process how it felt how the, because I think she was jealous of her daughter because her daughter got the affection of her husband and, um, and I think for a lot of women who have children when they're young and maybe with a man who they really deeply in love with I think that's a difficult thing which isn't explored that much and actually isn't explored much in the book because obviously we don't hear much about Penelope's father but um, if we get to a point of lost art coming into a different form or medium then that will be perhaps a film perhaps a TV no possibly is that being spoken about are you just Um, well I'm not I'm not sure if I'm I'm genuinely not sure if I'm supposed to say oh god but yes okay well let's talk about (laughs) this is always the fun bit let's talk about um dream casting mm-hmm. the most fun well yes I, I <laughs> it changes me so much I have I'm, I mean Harry was always my kind of my my, my David Bowie-ish which is obviously yes. you know in, in, in that in that kind of very almost David Bowie before when he was when he was in kind of mid 60s to late 60s so mm. unbelievably early Bowie that mm. look um, and then Rocky I always felt he was my absolute classic George Clooney in Oh Brother Where Art Thou. That was right, kind of my, right. I mean, obviously not not the character, but that sort of that American um, just charisma fizzles around in the air. Of them yes, like. and the whole point of him was his representation of the dream version of America. Yeah, and um, and so yeah, I always had that very clearly in mind for him. And the girls is so strange because for me. Um, Charlotte was such a direct mix in her looks between two of my close friends that I've almost found it impossible to um, to, to get that out of my head. Really? Um, as in, um, it's hard to think of her in any other way other than, other than how I built her in my imagination. But, um, yeah, I think... And Penelope the same in a weird way. I, I always wanted. I, I find wanted, them the hardest to cast in my head as well. I, well, I always wanted them both to be tall because I felt like fiction often... Is well, it's it, you, you don't you don't often get um, fictional heroines who are very tall. It's just I, I love and we were talking feel... about this in the main episode yeah. where we love that they're both tall. Mm. <laughs> but generally, it's like one is tall and blonde, and yeah, one yeah, is yeah. short and brunette, and it's yeah, all yeah, very yeah. formulaic. But yeah. I love how these two sort of like five foot ten girls going around London together, like yes. quite broad shouldered. You get the sense that there's yes. like there's meat quite, on their bones. There's you know? meat on their bones, and they're, and they're quite young. Yeah, well, so food was the other thing. Was that um. At that time, it was post-war and people weren't, you know, hadn't been able to eat whatever they wanted. Yes. And so I wanted Charlotte to be constantly, you know, foraging for food in the larder when she came to stay at Magna and, and just have this sense of her always wanting to eat and kind of going for the Aunt, Aunt Claire's teas and, you know, discussing food all the time. It was a really big part of it for me. I can imagine that you went through so many different, um, you know, crossing outs and rewrites over what exact food they're eating because it's always uh, perfect. What is a ginger yes. scone? I don't know, but it's perfect. Well, I just imagine it being... <laughs> Did you make it up? With ginger in. No, I've had them before. They had little kind of nuggets of actual proper ginger in there. Oh, right, right, right. So that's how it was. Absolutely delicious. Sounds great. Yeah. But the food, the food is by far the most fun part. Right? Always <laughs> food and clothes. Oh yeah, and you have, you have a, it's it's just so sensorial the whole thing. It's just a boring word to use, but no. Well, I'm like... I'm so utterly thrilled that you think so, and um, 
Yeah, I really hope that it's going to be uh, coming to light in a different uh, in medium. a different format, different, different, format, <laughs> different medium. Um, yeah. Fantastic. Well, yeah. I won't give you any longer, but this has been a brilliant interview. And Thank my, you. <laughs> my, my first interview um, with one of the authors, so I hope they're all this good. To be oh, gosh. Well, it's be, I, haven't, I haven't done an interview on Lost Art for so long um, that I had to kind of crank my, my brain into gear a bit. Yeah, what's it like but, to, really, we're talking about a book that you wrote 13 years ago? Uh, well, because the length of a teenager's kind of, life. It was reprinted, and yeah, exactly. My daughter's 13 now. Wow. Yeah. And she's read it. Which is which is the Does best she love thing. it? She loves it, and it's so adorable. But she's she's quite a harsh critic, and she, she reads a lot. And she was so nice about it that I felt like okay, job done. She likes it. Um, that's <laughs> Validation thirteen that's, years that later. Do. Yeah, exactly. But it, but if it's um because because I've been um I've been working on a script for it, it's, it feels quite fresh in my head in that sense that um the actual oh, story. That's great. Yeah. But discussing it in terms of you know of the actual thought behind it is is I haven't done for a while. It's really nice. Thanks Dave Rice for talking to me and thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode of Sentimental Garbage where I chat to Lucy Vine about Watermelon by Marion Keys. This has been Sentimental Garbage and I've been Caroline O'Donoghue. You can follow me on Twitter at Zaraline, that's C-Z-A-R-O-L-I-N-E or email me by the podcast at ZaralineO'Donoghue at gmail.com. Thanks to Harry Harris for the jingle, Gavin Day for the logo and Acast for the recording space. This has been a Justice for Dumb Women podcast produced by Hannah Varrell.